Welcome to the Carbon Sense podcast from Illsoy Advisor, where we do our best to uncomplicate the carbon landscape. I'm your host, Jennifer Jones, Agronomy Manager at Illinois Soybean Association, and today we are discussing carbon market opportunities. With us today is Gene Brokish, Midwest Program Manager for American Farmland Trust. Gene, thanks so much for joining us today. My pleasure, Jennifer. Jean Brokish is the Midwest Program Manager for American Farmland Trust, where she provides coordination and management support for the Illinois Sustainable Agriculture Partnership and both the Vermilion Headwaters Watershed Group and Upper Macoupin Watershed Group. Before joining AFT, Jean spent 11 years leading conservation and outreach programs for Oahu RCND, including oversight for multiple watershed implementation projects, on-farm cover crop research, and the building of Hawaii's Women Farmer Network. Jean grew up on a dairy farm in Southwest Wisconsin and enjoys gardening and being outdoors with her family. Jean has a Bachelor of Science in Agronomy from the University of Wisconsin at River Falls and a Master of Science in Soil Science from Purdue University. Awesome. So Jean, today we're going to be talking about carbon market opportunities and what growers need to be thinking about and aware of when they're evaluating those opportunities that are available for them. So to kind of kick the ball off here, um, could you lay some groundwork for us on just consumer demand and corporate sustainability goals um, to help us understand the opportunities here for growers in the carbon market space? Yeah, sure. And and maybe um, if it's okay, Jennifer, maybe I can just take a half a step back and talk a little bit about how ISAP got into this whole space and um, started, you know, kind of learning about this for myself as well as the organization. Um, really, you know, we've just seen, um, we were all hearing and we're still hearing a lot about carbon markets. And a lot of that is um, being driven by corporations. And so, you know, everything from Amazon to Walmart to Fat Tire Brewing Company to, you know, Frosted Flakes, Kellogg Cereal, a lot of those companies have all made, um, many of them have made sustainability goals or climate neutral goals. And so we're going to be climate neutral by 2030 or something like that. And so, so they're looking um, within their own systems and um, saying, you know, can we reduce, can we reduce our footprint? And, and, and if not, then that's really generating the whole market. But before that, even, I guess, I guess in terms of my role and the information that I've been working on really came about when different market entities were, um, trying to engage with farmers through the ISAP network. And it really became clear that we wanted to create an opportunity and to create some resources that really helped farmers understand and navigate some of the demand and some of the terms and some of the considerations and risks and unknowns. And so really that's, that's kind of um, how I got into it and um, have been learning as I go along. And I'm, I'm not really an expert, but I, I um, have uncovered some questions and I've had a lot of great conversations with farmers who have um, shared their insights with me and understanding kind of what the knowns are and how they're how they're evaluating these um, different opportunities that are before them. And I guess um, I guess just kind of one piece going back, you know, what's driving this from um, really what's driving this and how agriculture is playing into it is that you know the companies that have made those sustainability claims. Um, it's really being driven by the consumer demand and the corporate shareholder, um, those environmental and sustainability goals that those companies have made. And so I just uh, looked at one report. It was something like 96% of the market expansion that we've seen over the last couple of years. And it's really ha has exploded in the last couple of years. 
Um, 96% of that has really been driven by corporations and these sustainability goals and the sustainability pledges that they're making. And so that kind of leads into the next question then. So trying to understand where this money comes from. So we have these carbon credits that people want to purchase or corporations want to purchase. So um, where does that money come from? And maybe you could give us kind of just a brief breakdown of inset versus offset markets and then the private versus governmental funding that plays into this. Yeah, sure. So there's kind of a lot to unpack there, but um, basically a corporation has made some sort of claim or goal that they're going to be climate neutral. And um, they're looking within their own systems and can they reduce carbon? And I think one other thing, we're talking about carbon, but, but it's not just carbon dioxide, it's other greenhouse gases too. And I think that's a little bit of an important point for people to understand. I think carbon markets is a really nice short nickname for everybody and it's tangible, but we're also talking about things like methane and nitrous oxide and greenhouse gases. And then there's, there's also markets for, um, for water quality, water quantity, biodiversity, et cetera. So it's, it's, it's really an all encompassing kind of environmental ecosystem markets. But your question about then where the money's coming from comes from the fact that these the corporations are looking within their own systems and seeing where can they reduce the greenhouse gases within their value chain. And there may be opportunities for them within their own value chain or within their own supply chain to, to tweak, to tweak um, production, to tweak manufacturing, to tweak distribution or transportation. And those are, those are considered insets. Um, and then if they can't achieve that within their own value chain or their own supply chain, then they have to look at an external or third-party project developer. Um, and that would be when it moves to an offset type market. And basically, um, this is where there's something happening on the farm and the, uh, that is capturing or reducing greenhouse gases. And through some sort of market mechanism, funding is transferring from the corporation to the farmer um, through that offset market. Okay, great. Yeah. So maybe an example of that would be like an offset might be an airline or something where they want to work with farmers to try and, you know, take some carbon out of just a different, um, yeah, like it's not coming out of their supply necessarily, but out of the farmers instead. Whereas an inset might be like a corporation, like a food supply chain where they're able to work directly in with the growers who are growing their product, maybe to kind of, yes. Yeah. 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 And, um, and I think we'll get into this a little bit, some of the different markets, but like um, some of the egg supplier uh, input providers have entered the market space too. And they're using more of the inset type model where um, growers who are part of their supply chain or selling grain to them um, may be compensated for these practices. And that's like more through the inset market, whereas the offset market, you're absolutely right. Like, like an airline industry or, or Microsoft um, doesn't really have a lot of opportunities or has limited opportunities to uh, reduce the carbon. And so then that's where um, agriculture is being connected via that offset market. Yeah. Okay. Great. Thanks for that explanation too. Um, So it can be a little bit confusing as growers are looking at these programs and they're trying to figure out, you know, if I enroll in one, will I be eliminated from another potentially? Are there any examples of that right now that you could point out that growers can keep an eye on? 
there's definitely a lot of um, discussion among farmers that I've talked with and presented at, at various conferences. The term medicinality is one that's tossed around a lot, and that's really a requirement. We're, we're trying to create quality credits, and we're trying to really document some sort of global reduction in greenhouse gas. So we're not paying for things that are business as usual. And so that's where farmers um, are being asked to do something additional or above and beyond. And that's so additionality. So for a farmer who's been doing cover crops and no-till for a long time, the amount of carbon pie, so to speak, that's really accessible to them is much, much smaller than it than the amount of pie that's available for somebody who's not been doing these practices, who is willing to integrate those practices into their system. Um, and so um, it doesn't mean that someone who's been doing practices for a long time is not eligible. It just means that the, again, the, the slice of pie is a little smaller, but also maybe the, the hurdles or the additional changes that they need to make, there's fewer opportunities there. And so um, I like to think of this though, as, you know, soil health, there's, there's so many practices that can be implemented on a farm to capture carbon in the soil, you know, by improving that organic matter, by reducing fertilizer inputs really, really tips away at some of that nitrous oxide piece or managing your fertilizer differently can, can address the nitrous oxide, which is a really important greenhouse gas. Um, for uh, operations with livestock, you know, the methane, you can um, manage your manure differently and that would reduce the greenhouse gas associated with uh, methane. And so I think of this as a journey and like there's, you may be pretty well established on your soil health journey, but there's additional practices that can always be done. And so like for row crop agriculture in Illinois, a farmer who has been doing uh, no-till before soybeans could consider um, and add no-till or strip-till before corn. And that change from a more conventional tilled corn to no-till or strip-till before corn would allow them to enter the marketplace. Same for cover crops. You know, a lot of farms, or it's more typical for farms to do cover crops before soybeans, um, or maybe they're doing a single species of cover crops, or maybe they're doing a winter, winter kill species of cover crops. So by doing cover crops before corn, by um, doing multi-species cover crops, by adding a legume to cover crops, or by um, even extending, you know, the cover crop lifespan and planting green, all of those are opportunities to increase the greenhouse gas reductions or, or capture additional carbon. And, and they are opportunities to enter the marketplace. But again, they're just smaller than somebody who has not been doing nothing and then shifts to using cover crops. If that, I hope that makes sense. There's a lot of, it's, it's very unique for each farm, right? But I guess my, my take home message for farmers is that, yes, you're you may already be doing a lot of these practices, um, but there's still opportunity to ad implement additional soil health practices if you really, really want to enter the marketplace. I think there's a space for you there. Yeah, that's great. I love that um, description that you used of calling it a journey because, yeah, just like what you're saying, there are so many opportunities to continue advancing your system and how you manage things on your farm. And yeah, thank you for laying that out really well there. 
Um, and I liked how you call it a, a slice of the carbon pie too. So as we, we think about that carbon pie and just all of the um, opportunities that are available out there, could you give us maybe just a brief overview of some of those opportunities that are currently available for growers here in Illinois specifically? Um, and then as we think about that too, could we talk a little bit about maybe some conservation incentives that are also available from the federal and state programs that might be separate from those industry carbon markets? Sure. So I think to start with, um, there's a lot of markets in existence, and it seems to be some new ones that are popping up regularly. And so I'm happy to kind of give an overview, but I want, I think I want to the listeners to understand like this is not all inclusive and um, these are changing dynamic. And so really um, encouraging them to do some of their own research and contact market representatives if they are interested in learning more. Um, but essentially as we were doing the research and a lot of this, I think um, Dr. Emily Bruner was on your podcast on a previous um, episode of it. She and I really uh, did a lot of this work through ISAP. And as we were, learning about the different markets, we identified these three bu different buckets. And there's nothing really tried and true or very scientific about how they fit in those different buckets. But essentially, there's um, market programs, which are really truly market programs. And so these are sort of operating like brokers in the marketplace. These are like the real estate agents when you sell your house, right? Like they don't have a house to buy, and they don't have a house to sell. They're just the matchmaker. And so these are brokers that don't have carbon to buy and don't have carbon to sell, but they are connecting the farmers to the Amazons or to the airline industries or whatever. And so some common names um, in, in this kind of bucket of different market structures would be Indigo Ag and Nori. Uh, those two entities are really focused almost exclusively on carbon um, but there's also the Soil and Water Outcomes Fund, which is available to farmers in Illinois. And then there's the Ecosystem Services Market Consortium, which um, is also a broker. And both the Soil and Water Outcomes Fund and Ecosystem Services Market Consortium, or ESMC, is uh, looking a little bit beyond carbon. So they also account for water quality um, uh, and water quantity, as well as soil carbon or greenhouse gas emissions. So those those four entities are are the most common and most established in terms of the market broker type model. Um, and then there's the second bucket um, are are input providers. Uh, so these are companies like Bayer, Corteva, and Nutrien. Uh, these are companies that a lot of farmers are either buying. Um, fertilizer or seed from already, and they're probably already part of their supply chain. And so a lot of these companies, these companies might be using a little bit more of that inset model of market. Um, and um, they are uh, working with growers in their supply chain, like I mentioned. And sometimes um, I think what's interesting or what's kind of unique about some of these pilot programs when they came out was that rather than actually paying farmers for the credits, they were issuing coupons in some, some cases for future products. So you were part of their supply chain and, and you received that economic benefit, but it wasn't necessarily a payment. And then the third bucket of um, market incentives are sort of a data platforms and um, some technology type uh, uh, systems out there. And so like Truterra is a common one. Truterra is a data farm data management platform from Land O'Lakes. And um, 
farmers may be using these data platforms already to manage yield data, to manage fertilizer, to manage economics, whatever. And so the data platforms have just integrated carbon into that system. And so I, I mentioned Jutera already, but there's also Farmers Business Network from, uh, uh, they have a platform called Gradable. And then SIBO um, has a platform called SIBO Carbon. And uh, a lot of these are, are continuing to expand and evolve. And sometimes there's partnerships between or among the different entities too. So it's really um, a variety of uh, different market opportunities, different structures. They're all slightly unique. And so really for a farmer who's looking at thinking about any of these, um, I think understanding how the markets are working, what those contract requirements are, what the contract terms are, et cetera, that's all super important and part of the education and research that I think farmers should do. And then, um, Jennifer, you asked about the, the fourth, kind of the fourth bucket that I like to introduce and think about is those, is those more traditional conservation incentives that are available from USDA, from or like from NRCS or from the state of um, Illinois, like Partners for Conservation Fund. And so when, these are not carbon markets, but for a farmer, again, who's on that journey for soil health and looking to make a change and is looking for some financial incentives to help overcome that learning curve and um, offset some of those initial costs to make the change. Um, things like EQIP and CSP are, are really good options for them. Um, these tend to be more familiar, less risky, they're public funded. So there's a little bit more transparency around them. Um, there's a little bit more um, or maybe perceived less risk around working with uh, USDA, it's not right for every grower, for sure. But um, looking at looking at so EQIP and CSP, and then there's also um, uh, the Partners for Conservation Fund, and then there's also you know the crop insurance discount that's available to growers in Illinois for acres planted into cover crops, where you can actually uh, qualify for five dollars off your crop insurance premium. So there's a lot of there's a lot of reasons um, and potential. Uh, for farmers to benefit from doing these practices, um, be it a private market or be it a public incentive. And then I think one more thing, just to, just to confuse this even further a little bit, um, you can actually stack the private money with the public money. So it's possible for a farmer who is looking at enrolling in EQIP for three years to transition to a more uh, no-till cover crop system to also enroll into a market incentive where they would then be able to stack those payments on top of each other. And um, that's where I think it really starts making more economic sense to farmers if they can stack the payments. Because um, if you look at just the revenue generated from the private carbon markets, it's not, right now, it's not enough for most farmers to make a change. Yeah, that's great. Thank you for clarifying that. Because I mean, there is, there are pots of money out there that are available just, you know, from our state level or, you know, the federal level, as you're mentioning. And it, it is good to know that those can be stacked with carbon market opportunities because it can be kind of confusing as you're trying to uh, navigate that space. So great. Um, all right. So thank you for that overview. Do you have any tips for growers who are trying to decide if a, par a carbon program is right for them? And then if so, how do they decide which program to choose? So I think the first the first response I have to that is for growers to just really ask themselves and understand 
their their why, like why are they interested in this, and and to think of it more as their place on this soil health journey. Um, I just mentioned, you know, a lot of the payment current market incentive payment rates are not enough to make somebody just go out and purchase new equipment and change how they've been producing their crops. So um, asking yourself, is this something that I'm already committed to doing and can the markets help move me along is really important, I think. And I think knowing that why and knowing where they are on the soil health journey and knowing how committed they are to, to being on that soil health journey with or without the markets is a really important, a really important conversation to have, you know, with yourself as farm owner, but also, you know, your other members of your farm team. And, um, and and I think a lot of that is based on, you know, so then whether you go forward with your decisions or not is really based on how much, what's my realistic goals? You know, what are the management changes that are going to be needed? What kind of technical support is available from whatever market I choose? What technical support do I need as a farmer? And then Lastly, I think this is really important, too, is for farmers to understand and have conversations with any market or incentive that they pursue to understand what the records requirement is. Um, for some of the markets, it's pretty extensive. And um, and you might find that you're doing a lot, a lot, a lot of paperwork for about $8 an acre, you know, and or you're you're being asked to make a major management change for about $8 an acre. So again, if, if, um, is that worth it to you and understanding that? And, and if you're already committed to a soil health journey, then yeah, $8 an acre is probably enough to move you along and get you, you know, get you on the path and move you along. Um, but if you're not really committed to it, I think, you know, you need to really look at that closely. So I guess if you can't tell, like, I really feel like this is really coming down to bigger picture, you know, carbon markets are a tool I think that can help accelerate the adoption of soil health practices, but I think ultimately it comes down to whether a farmer is committed to implementing those practices and building their soil health as the, as the first, you know, kind of fundamental question. Yeah, I love that. That's great advice. Um, it could be easy to just step into one of these markets thinking, oh, great, it's, you know, money that can help with my operation. But if you're not committed to actually doing the things that they're requesting, it can become more burdensome than you originally planned. And um, yeah, it's, it's great to think through that why and make sure that you're committed with following through with all the steps required to meet some of these uh, requirements that they have. So that's great advice. And you kind of alluded a little bit there towards the end too about um, just data. Uh, we know that there has to be data collected to meet some of these requirements from the carbon market. Um, and so what preparations could farmers take before enrolling to kind of get prepared for a carbon program? And then like, especially in regards to data, like what can they be doing to prepare for that? I think there's a lot of information out there in terms of what, what kinds of questions farmers should ask. And I think that knowing, um, having that conversation, even, even having an initial conversation with a market representative to say, what kinds of data will I need? But I know that they're going to be looking for, you know, planting dates, termination dates, seeding rates, fertilizer inputs, um, yields, um, and not just of the cover crop, you know, you're going to, they, they look at the whole system. So they're looking also at herbicide um, passes and 
and type of fertilizer application. So it's really a really detailed diary of your production system on that field in order to identify kind of the whole footprint of of that field, you know, the whole greenhouse gas accounting. So we can establish that baseline. And um, I just was speaking with a farmer a few days ago who said that he had to go back about six years of worth of records. Um, so even though he enrolled in 2021 and they were looking at 2021, you know, he was being paid on 2021, he had to go back and have detailed records from five years before. So for a lot of farmers are already gathering that and tracking that, but for farmers who aren't, you know, it'd be a good, a good time to uh, start keeping a detailed diary and know those kinds of things. Um, if you want to ensure the best opportunity to, or the, or the best, piece of the pie, I guess, right? Um, otherwise, you're counting on their assumptions, and there may be things that you're actually doing that would allow you to have a larger um, payment through the carbon market, but you have to have those records and those details to back them up. Great, thanks. Yeah, that's that's good to know. Definitely need to have that data organized and in a space where you can uh, walk through it with someone and hand it over. So good. Um, all right. So we're kind of wrapping up here. Just have a couple more questions for you. Um, what piece of information do you wish was better communicated in the carbon space? It's kind of a big question, but what do you think? <laughs> no, I think one of the things that's just really lacking in the carbon market space is some, a little bit of the transparency. Um, it, it's, it's new, it's evolving, and um, it's a little like, I've heard it compared to the Wild West, right, um, where we're kind of building it and the rules are changing a little bit or they're adapting. If I could talk with the carbon market representatives and ask for one piece of information, it would actually be copies of contracts and um, the opportunity to go through them all and understand what the language means. Like at one point I had this idea that we really needed to have like a, a legend or a dictionary for the contract terms, you know? So really um, understanding what's in those contracts. And I think that's important for a farmer perspective that if you're looking at one of these market opportunities to make sure you read the contract and ideally you have an attorney who can walk you through it, right? And and review it on your behalf. But if you don't have an attorney, you know, make sure you read it yourself and highlight things you don't understand and find somebody who can help you understand that. I think that's a really important first step because um, out of that, I think will come a lot of the other things that I wish were better communicated. And that's like around who actually is holding the carbon, um, who actually, um, how are the how are the payment structures actually um, uh, determined, you know, and what amount is held back, what amount goes to the farmer, you know, so we can say that we might be credit, we might be developing a whole credit per acre, but is the farmer being paid for the whole credit or are they being paid for a part of the credit because the, the broker or the company is holding part of it. And then there's also creating these things called buffer pools, which are um, kind of savings accounts of the whole carbon space in case for whatever reason, we're not generating as much carbon as we thought we were going to, you know. So um, all those things, um, I think, are are yet to be fully communicated and understood. And I think that, again, if I, if I could just um, 
ask those carbon markets and they would listen to me and do this, I would, I would ask them to share their contract terms and really, really create better transparency and clarity on the marketplace. Yeah, that's great uh, to think about the transparency aspect. We really, you know, farmers want to protect their data. It's important, the information that's coming off of their fields to make sure that it's protected and kept secure. So yeah, that's a great piece. I hope we can see that kind of evolve moving forward as well. So, all right, last question for you here today, Jean. What are you most excited to see from the carbon market space in the coming year or two? Maybe a direction it's going to head or something exciting that we could see come out of it? Well, I do think um, a couple things. I think if I could go back to my first or a comment I made before about, you know, the fundamental piece of the whole carbon market space is, is, is really based on soil health and soil organic matter. And so I'm excited that the market has created a little bit more attention and opportunity and um, economic benefits, direct economic benefits of those practices. So I'm excited about that because I think it's really brought some renewed attention to practices that are really important and helpful both for environmental outcomes and farmer outcomes and productivity outcomes. Again, things like reduced tillage and cover crops and nutrient management. All those are um, really important and uh, carbon markets are, are getting us to think about those. Um, so hopefully, um, I'm excited that there's a potential that it could increase use of those practices and, again, help farmers understand the economic and environmental benefits of those practices. Um, I also think, um, you know, I've heard some people say, like, oh, the, the market's either really going to take off and the price is going to go up and I, or it's going to just fizzle out. And I don't think it's going to fizzle out. I think that a lot of the companies and the shifts in consumer demand or the continued growth in consumer demand and those environmental and sustainability account of, um, accounting that people are more and more interested in, um, I don't think those are going to go away. So I think um, the, the carbon market will continue to evolve and I hope it will kind of settle down a little bit and we'll have better transparency and better understanding of some of the guardrails and um, hopefully to increase prices. So I'm optimistic about the market opportunities. I think um, there's some unknowns and risks and for some farmers, they're willing to um, willing to take on those risks, you know, now. And for some farmers, um, it probably makes more sense to wait maybe, you know, six months or another year to see how the next rollout goes and how things kind of settled, um, settled down a little bit. But I guess ultimately I, I would really urge agriculture and farmers not to just write this off because I do think that there's a real opportunity and a real, a real opportunity here to, for farmers to benefit from the shift and the change and the just kind of societal goals of better, more sustainably produced products. So Jean, you mentioned ISAP and some resources that you all produced last year around the carbon space. Um, where can our listeners find those resources? Great question, Jennifer. So a lot of the uh, recordings of the webinars that we hosted with different market representatives, as well as a fact sheet that we put together that actually compared um, major considerations of different markets. So there was 10 different markets we looked at and summarized contract lengths, um, verification requirements, et cetera, et cetera. All of that is on ISAP's website, which is ilsustainableag.org. 
And if you go to the homepage, you can navigate by way of resources, or you can um, go to ilsustainableag.org slash ecomarkets, where, uh, again, the fact sheet is there, some different webinar recordings, as well as other information that we've gathered on ecosystem and carbon markets. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Jean. That was just a great conversation. I really appreciate you taking the time to share your wisdom and knowledge and the things you've learned about the carbon space with us today. So uh, thanks again, everyone, for joining us. Uh, that was Jean Brokish, the Midwest Program Manager for American Farmland Trust. If you're interested in learning more about the science behind carbon and other soybean management resources, visit www.ilsoyadvisor.com. That's ilsoyadvisor.com to learn more. This has been the Carbon Sense Podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss any of the important carbon conversations to come. <laughs>